another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream, and you can. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough. Or even if they don't dictate it a bit differently today, I am once again at home in my non-mobile office and my non-mobile studio recording with Audacity. So you'll get um, better uh, audio quality today. And for those that aren't familiar with Audacity, that's not me. That's a program that I use to record the show when I'm not in the mobile studio. Anyway, today we have a good show queued up for you. We're going to be doing a listener question show. Even though I'm home, I'm not going to do call-ins. I'm going to do my typical morning, uh, sh- uh, Monday morning show where people uh, send me emails and I answer them. And i got some great questions lined up for today. I do got some housekeeping today, and i got quite a bit today. It's going to be a little more than normal, but folks, it's not all um, promotional stuff. It's things that I want you to know. Number one, please keep voting for us for Podcast of the Year over in the general category at podcastawards.com. There'll be a link in today's show notes as always. And make sure you're getting by the site from time to time, not just downloading the podcast or the feeder, what have you. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. I provide a lot of resources every time I do a show uh, that are part of the show links and whatnot. Next, um, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. Our sponsors do an awful lot to help support the show and make it available to you. We have two sponsors of the day-to-day. Sponsor number one, SOE Tactical Gear, John Willis's group. Uh, they make some of the best tactical equipment I've ever seen. They've really supported our show from the beginning. In fact, they've given away thousands of dollars of their equipment free to uh, our listeners in a listener appreciation contest. Listener appreciation contest hasn't been around in a while. Hang in, folks. Don't fast forward. There's going to be one a day. All right. <laughs> uh, next one. Berkey light water filters from Directive 21 will keep you drinking pure, clean water, folks. Of all the things that we need to be prepared for, having good, clean sources of water is a great one. So check out Directive 21. And those two sponsors and all of our sponsors are available at the survivalpodcast.com in our right-hand margin. Now, did I say something about a listener appreciation contest? It's where you got to tune your ears in. We've got a lot of new listeners since the last time we did one, so... Pay attention so you can play the game and win something today. James Stevens' book, Making the Best of Basics, is currently in its like 12th edition or 11th edition, something like that. It is going, it is finally shipping, and it is now selling for $35. I think it's an outstanding value for $35. It comes with a bonus CD of James where he spends about an hour giving you some ideas on how to use the book and how to integrate it in your life for prepping. Wonderful book, one of the best I've read. I ordered one myself. And I don't know if I ordered two. I don't know if James sent me one. All I know is two books showed up. I have one that's not even been opened. It's still in the box. All I'm going to do is slap it on a label and ship this book for free to whoever wins today's contest. Now, the way you play the listener appreciation contest, you have to uh, enter the contest first. You do that on a form on the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and you will see a link that says listener appreciation contest. It's also in every single set of show notes. Go there, enter your name and email. If you're not in there, you can't play, you can't win. All you have to do today is send me an email. In the subject line, in the subject line, you have to follow my directions exactly here. You must put the word, best best of basics, three words, best of basics, all lowercase, Outlook filters it. If you don't do it that way, you're not going to get entered. In the body of the email, put your name, your shipping address, so if you win, I can send it to you without trying to track you down, and the email address you used when you entered the contest. Again, Best of basics, 
in the subject line, email address, name, shipping address in the body of the email. Nothing but best of basics in the subject line. If anything else is there, you're not in. Okay, one more thing. Do not, do not use the contact form on the website. Send the email. Send me an email. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com with just the three code words in the subject, and that's all. Otherwise, you haven't entered. Uh, you've just deceived yourself. I will give away this book to the 47th person to email me today with that. 47. Everybody has a chance to win. All right, so with that knocked out, um, I want to remind you to join our forum. I'm going to leave it at that so it doesn't get too long today. And I want to tell you, if you think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get exclusive content available only to members with a whole bunch of stuff now. Just check it out and see for yourself. Last little note before I go into questions. This is really not housekeeping. This is an announcement for tonight. From 7 to 9 tonight, I will be on the air live with James Talmadge Stevens, author of the book I'm giving away this morning, um, on Blog Talk Radio on his talk show, first ever primetime broadcast he's doing, again, 7 to 9. The show's actually live from 7 till 8. You have an hour where you can listen live online. Um, and after that, there's another hour. You don't hear us, but when the show is uh, put up later as a podcast, you can download the other hour. So if you're on trying to get in on the phones and you want to talk to us, even when we stop being live, if you still want to call in a question, you can do it at that point. I'll send out an email reminder today as well. I want as many of you guys to show up tonight as possible. Again, 7 to 9, that is Central Standard Time. So that's 7 to 9 Central. That would be, what, 8 to 10 Eastern? And you can do the math going out to the left coast. So there we go. Longer than normal, but lots of stuff going on today. Again, please make sure you vote for the podcast at podcastawards.com. It means a lot to me. I really want to win that. All right. So let's get on to today's show. Let's start taking some questions. We've got some great ones today. Um, let's start off with our first question. Guy sends me an email. says he's looking to do some more permaculture stuff. And uh, he's found a company called eBurgis. I'm not real familiar with them. I know of them, but I, I can't vouch for who they are. But they have a product that you can buy called a postage stamp orchard. Um, now, what this little product is, as I pull it up here so I can actually look at it, it's only 50 bucks, And for 50 bucks, you get six trees. You get a yellow delicious apple, a red delicious apple, an Alberta peach, a kefir pear, a North Star cherry, and a dwarf nectarine variety. And he wants to know if he, I think this is worth fifty bucks. Um, if it if it performs well, if these are well started trees that grow well, that mature out relatively quickly because of the dwarf size, and they produce fruit, uh, it's an, ex- an outstanding value. Um, I'm actually looking at this and thinking there's a spot in Arkansas where I'm going to want some dwarf trees where I could use maybe two or three of these packages uh, planted alternately. Um, but I would not buy two or three of them right away. I would go ahead and buy one. i say it's only 50 bucks. Um, so, you know, you roll the dice. If they deliver well, they deliver well. If they don't deliver well, then, you know, you're only out 50 bucks. But six good dwarf trees, and these are true dwarfs. These are trees that should grow about the size of like a uh, a fairly tall hedge, according to the description. And I'll put a link in the show notes, folks, so you can take a look at this little package. Again, no affiliate link or anything, just want you to see it. Let me give you my thoughts on dwarf trees as a whole. I think that they're a good option for the kind of the urban homestead where you don't really have the room for a lot of big trees for a lot of variety. Um, I also think they're a very good 
usable tool in a permaculture system on even a larger spread is you you know you create your food forest and your forest canopy and you come out to your understory trees and you come out to your edge and right at your edge you want your lower story trees you can go with dwarfs or semi dwarfs there what I like about this package is the variety again the two different types of apples the pear uh, the peach uh, the cherry <laughs> excuse me the cherry and the nectarines the reason I like that is it gives you a lot of redundancy. Hopefully you'll be getting some production out of something every year because sometimes you have good years and bad years and things like that. So I like the variety there. I don't know that these would be the particular varieties that I would pick myself, though. So you may be better off assembling your own mix, but you're probably going to pay more than this. I've never seen trees price this low. makes me a little bit skeptical, but hey, you know what? If, it, if they're decent and you had a big piece of land and you planted 12 of these guys and did a package it too it'd be a pretty nice little additional thing to have so i don't know i mean that's the best i can give you on it but i like the concept of dwarf trees i'm a little bit more into uh semi dwarfs myself not quite as small you're going to get a better yield off them uh but i wouldn't hesitate to give it a shot especially if you have a limited confined area and then you know if you're using this in an urban homestead type environment make sure that you really fertilize these trees well mulch them well water them well take really good care of them for their first year and pretty good care of them for their second year by their third year they should have enough root down there uh where they can really take care of themselves to a large degree and uh, let's go on to another question. This is one that I, I, I'm kind of tentative on. I, I'm not so sure about how I feel about this one. Um, I, I know how I feel about it for the guy that wrote in. Um, what he says is, and I won't give his name at all because of the circumstances of the email, but uh, he says 10 years ago he was convicted of a DUI. And um, it was considered a felony conviction. Uh, he's since sworn off alcohol, doesn't drink. Um, he's paid his debt to society, whatever that was. And uh, he has never been in trouble with the law again. But considering where he lived, that being arrested for a DWI was considered a felony, he now has lost the right, at least where he lives, to own a firearm. Because he's a felon. And what are my thoughts on that? In particular, any nonviolent felony. Um, I don't know, folks. I mean, this is a tough one. This is one of these things where, you know, when you violate the law uh, and you ignore the rights of others, then you, you know, subjugate yourself to the, the, the common law that says that other people have rights too. And if you don't respect other people's rights, you can lose your rights. And that's, that is a foundation of our republic. That goes back to the founding fathers. There's a reason that, that they have laws like that. Now, okay, a DUI. Okay, this guy's no threat because he has a gun. But if you go around driving drunk, you can kill people. It happens all the time. So you've disrespected the right of another person's life, but then you've reformed yourself. Okay, so then we would say, okay, this guy should be able to own a gun again. Well, what about the person that, you know, beat three women near to death and raped them, but reformed themselves, and we honestly believe he's not going to be a recitative, uh, you know, he's not going to be, he's not going to ever be in jail again. The guy's clearly cleaned his life up. Uh, you'd trust him, you know, with your own life if you had to. Do we give him his gun back? I don't know. I don't know on this one. I'm interested to hear what, what people think. 
I don't want anybody to get all angry and mad because I don't have a definitive answer here, but it's it's one of those things that it's so easy to knee-jerk and say, if it's not violent, give him his gun back. But what other rights do we lose when we are convicted of a felony? Do we get them all back? Is there a place where once you do something, there's a consequence that lasts with you for the rest of your life? Or would it be more suited to say that once a person has been convicted of a felony, that there are things that they can do to eventually fully repay their debt to society. We call it paying a debt to society, folks, right? You know, And then the person goes out and tries to get a job, and there's a multitude of jobs they can never get. Um, they have a stigma with them for the rest of their life. So do we create a way for people that have committed crimes to go above and beyond spending time on probation, parole, and in jail or prison? Do we give them a path back to full restitution? That, I think, is the solution for just about all crimes other than things like murder, um, and child abuse, uh, those two, I think you should be in a hole in the ground, honestly. You people that are out there, you know, sexually abusing children and, and murdering other people, their solution is a hole in the ground and buried. I think with just about, ev- just about every other crime, I can't cross all the dots here, but I think we should have as a society a path to full restitution. And I don't know what that path is, but that would be my honest answer about how I really feel about that. Not much of a survival topic other than now you've got a guy who cannot defend himself uh, by ownership of a firearm. I also would ask you, maybe there are places where you could go where you have a little bit more leniency in what you're allowed to own considering you're a nonviolent offender. I'm not, since I've never been uh, convicted of a felony and I don't ever plan on it, I don't know that you would not be allowed to own a firearm here. I'm not sure that... DWI is a felony. I don't think it's a felony in the state of Texas. It's like a class 3 misdemeanor. And did you do something? The other thing is, did you do something else? Was it just a DWI? Did you hit somebody and hurt somebody or damage property or kill somebody? I mean, that that might be why it's a felony. So I I can't say any more than that. But I do think with nonviolent offenders at least, uh, and probably with all, if we're going to say that a person's paid their debt to society, and we say that 10 years of your life in a federal prison and and uh, 10 more years of probation, if that's not enough to, to fully expunge a record and give a person, you know, kind of maybe not so much that no one can find out that they ever did it, but basically they have the same rights that they did before they committed it. If we're not going to give them that path, then we, we can't say they've paid their debt to society. So then we're collectively saying as a society, your debt will never be fully repaid. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. And if that's what we're saying, then I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying, but we should be honest about it. So way longer than I plan to answer that question, but it's just one of those ones that uh, that really makes you think. All right, here's another question. Um, a guy named Richard, and I'll leave it at that, asked me, what do you think of putting an ad in the paper or on Craigslist offering to buy Pre-1965, I would say pre well, I guess it is pre-65, so 64 and back, U.S. silver coins. I see ads by people offering to pay well below spot, so this would cut out the middleman. My thought would be to meet the person in a public place, pay them after examining the merchandise, and leave without being followed. If you're worried about leaving without being followed, man, I don't, you know, maybe you're a little foil going on there, Jeff. You know, I mean, don't really worry too much about being followed for buying, you know, unless I guess if you're going to buy $10,000 worth of coins, I might worry about being followed. But if you're going to go buy, you know, 50 to $100 worth of coins, most people walk around with that much cash on them all the time. So don't worry about being followed, man. But the plan's sound. And I think what you could do, but this is what I would do. Um, I see a lot of these ads myself, and I've thought about this. It's probably a good idea where a guy says, let's just say he's going to pay... Um, 
I don't know what's uh, an ounce of silver going for right now. It's like sixteen or eighteen bucks, and then you, you factor in the coin factor. Let's just say the coins are trading at spot at at uh, twenty dollars an ounce. I don't think they've ever really been that high recently, but let's just say that for for argument's sake, the spot's twenty, and you see people in a paper that are advertising to pay sixteen. I'd go right in at eighteen. I'd whatever whatever your 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 highest low baller is bidding and whatever the spot is I'd go straight in the middle of that and I'd offer to pay that and I bet you you'll get more people contacting you than him now this same guy Jeff asked some other cool questions uh, actually it's not Jeff it's Richard so sorry about calling you Jeff I don't know why I did that but Richard also said can you recommend any survival vacations besides camping I was thinking instead of taking the kids to Disney, maybe to go to a place like Williamsburg, Virginia, where the kids could see what it's like to live in the pre-industrial society. I think that's really cool. But let me tell you, I went to Colonial Williamsburg when I was a young man, very, very young. I'd say I was probably about eight or nine, somewhere in there, during a trip with my grandparents. And I didn't really like it. I didn't really enjoy it. Um, they never really explained to me in advance why we were going there, what it was all about, and what I should expect to see and learn. And because of that, it was just a bunch of people dressed in old-time you know, stuff. And what I think back now that's sad is the way that I was interested in fishing, hunting, the outdoors, and history as a child, I think if it would have been explained to me what the actual purpose of the trip was, and what to look for and what to learn about, I think I would have enjoyed the trip a lot better. I'd sure like to go back now. So I'm okay with trips like that for kids. I think what you're going to get more out of it if you talk to your children in advance and say, look, we're going to take you here and this is why. And this is some of the cool stuff that you're going to see. And I would also build into that trip some of the things that your kids like because they're not into this as much as you are because they're kids. So make sure you build some other peripheral things into them. Now, I'll tell you... Um, a big thing I think you can do for your kids, especially if you're going to be uh, near uh, the Virginia area, go to Washington, D.C. Go to Washington, D.C. You want your kids to get a feeling for the history of this nation and understand what it's really all about and understand how far we've come. Take them to see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Let them actually look at the document. Tell them what it means. Tell them, tell them how many people died so that those documents could actually be there for them. Take them to the Vietnam Memorial and have them stand in front of that huge black granite wall and say these are men that died before you were ever born because they believed in freedom as an ideal. And some people think that what they did was for wrong and some people think that what they did for right is, but every one of these men here did it because it was their duty. Many of them did not want to go. Our country made them go and they showed up and they did what they were asked. Take them to the Lincoln Memorial and explain how the nation was torn apart and the war between the states preserved a union and asked them to understand that sometimes that even in places where it looks like the everything worked out for the best that there's been some damage done and that there's some repairs that still need to be done because of that war. Make sure you walk across the, uh, the grounds when you go see the Vietnam Memorial and go to the Korean Memorial that nobody seems to go to. The Forgotten War even has a forgotten memorial. Take them there. Take them to the Smithsonian. Show them history. Take them to the Washington Monument. Tell them how our first president was offered the ability to be a king and said, no, that's not what we fought for. Tell them how after serving twice as our president, he set an example for future leaders 
and said, I won't serve more than two terms. That's not a democracy. Somebody else needs to take the reins now. Take them to D.C. That's as much a survival vacation as anything else because understanding the principles of freedom that we seek to preserve is as important as any other type of skill that you can teach them. We worry in this country not just that maybe food won't be available to us, but will we be able to choose the food that we eat? We'll be able to choose the food that we grow. We'll be able to choose the education that our children get. And already we're at a point where we don't really get to choose the education that our children receive. We'll be able to choose the way that we treat ourselves medicinally or herbally or any way that we see fit. And this isn't tinfoil hat folk stuff. This is, this is real, real stuff. We are having our freedoms eroded. And instead of hiding government from your children... If you want to instill in them a sense of responsibility, duty, honor, country, and putting this nation back on the track that it was founded as a constitutionally governed republic, with rights of both the majority and the minority existing, take them right into the heart of the city where their corrupt government is, and show them that even with the corruption in government around them, the waypoints that show us our way back are all right there. And maybe we should make our congressmen, once a year carry their asses down to that out of that rotunda and go down and read the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. I think that everybody in our government should have to read publicly, out loud, both documents once a year. What do you think, folks? All right, I got another question here. Guy says, what happened to, uh, you know, Richard, same one. So what happened to your reviews of the colony? Did the show end? I rarely get to watch TV, so I enjoyed your review of each episode. I just got tired of reviewing it on the air. I really did. Um, I had so many things to get to you guys during that time. I don't think I reviewed like the last three episodes. Uh, what happens in the end? Uh, they end up putting their vehicle together. They get attacked by the marauders and they ride out into. Uh, and they get a message that says if you go down to some place in Southern California, there's food and support and help. And and uh, they got through it. And uh, that's really kind of how it ended. I thought the last couple episodes were were probably the worst of the episodes. They did some really stupid things. Um, and I, as I was saying, as I defended the show early on, a lot of the stupid things were just mistakes that you would expect people to make, but they did some dumb stuff. Um, they lost a guy, and they wanted to help him find his way home, so they took apart shotgun shells, and they made fireworks and set them off on the roof so that they could be seen. Well, the guy knows where they are. He's been there the entire time with him. He could find his way back, and they wasted a valuable commodity, either as ammunition uh, or barter. I, I just thought the show got too dumb in the end, and... The entire concept of the way that they ran the end of that show just didn't add up with the scenario they created, so I got bored with it. Um, last one. Rich has got his uh, foil hat going on a little bit. Is the swine flu a manufactured virus? I believe it is. Why isn't there a massive investigation to uncover the source? Um, well, dude, if it really was a manufactured virus, then the government would manufacture it, and the government would be charged with investigating, and of course they would investigate their own conspiracy. So that would be why. Um, I don't think swine flu is a manufactured virus. I do think there is a propensity or a probability that research into vaccines gone awry may have created the virus by triggering immune responses in individuals. Um, and there is actually documentation from the World Health Organization that says that as flu researchers try to jump ahead of the curve, um, again, this is from World Health Organization here, folks, not tinfoil hattery, that what vaccine makers do is actually try to cause the vaccine to mutate to determine how it's going to mutate. And then that gets them ahead of the curve in getting a virus ready for the next mutation. Now, if we're doing stuff like that, and they say we are, so I believe them. Um, 
there is a potential that we could alter the virus in a way, and then that virus could escape. Uh, a researcher, no matter how um, much sanitation and care and safety that they're using could transmit the virus, become infected with the virus, especially a mild virus like this where um, a lot of people get the, the swine flu, they don't even have a response to it. They're, they're walking around with it and they have like, you know, a very, very mild ill feeling that they never really even see as a flu. So with that being the case, it's, it's highly possible that anybody doing research in the flu industry could have transmitted the virus into the public. That's possible, but it's not a conspiracy and it's not they're trying to wipe us out. Folks, l- look, this virus is almost uh, the weakest form of flu we've seen in 20 years. Uh, in spite of the, the, the hyperbole about the people that have died from it, Come on, let's be real. More people die from seasonal flu every year than this thing. If they're going to try to wipe us out, they're going to make something that will wipe us out. Now, the concept that uh, they did it just so we'll all take this poison vaccine. Well, the reasons that people say that you shouldn't get the H1N1 vaccine, um, you know, things like mercury being in there, that's in the regular flu shot, too. So, you know, if all of this government black helicopter conspiracy trying to wipe us out stuff David I've been asked about David Ike too I'm sorry guys it's a story that's just not there um, my problem with the government's response to the flu incompetence um, overreaching overreacting using it as an excuse to either stand up on a platform or overreach with power that's the problem. Let's focus on the real problem here. It's just a sickness. It's just a disease like any other disease, and it's not as big a deal as we've been led to believe. And they'll tell you, well, some you know, child was healthy yesterday and died tomorrow, and it happened you know, several years ago, folks. I remember I was in New York, and I was traveling, and a uh, guy said that his niece got the flu. And she was perfectly healthy. She started to get better. She laid down on the couch. Her mother came to check on her two hours later, and she was dead. And she got something called Rye Syndrome. Um, and that's something that they always said, well, aspirin causes. Well, this girl had no aspirin. She still got it. It happens. Sick Sicknesses come, and sometimes they affect people in ways that we don't expect them. A thousand people could be stung by a bee. It's a mild annoyance. Some portion of them, if not treated, will die from an allergic reaction to it. So let's not let this stuff hype us up. Um, And let's just keep our eye on the ball, and that is that there could always be a disease that creates a pandemic that's dangerous, and we always need to be prepared for it, whether it's swine flu or anything else. Next question comes from someone called Connor. I'll leave it at Connor. Connor says, I'm going to have my first opportunity to have a garden next season. And I'm going to have some rabbits and some chickens and things like that. I finally got a place I can do this. Space is not a problem. But my first gardens, should I start with... Raised beds and square foot or a conventional garden? Or should I do one of each? Um, I'm a big advocate of the square foot method, and I think as a, as a beginner, it's a great way to start. I think as an expert, it's a great way to uh, to garden. I'm also a pretty big fan of what's called the biointensive method, which has spacings which end up with about the same density as a square foot garden, but it's a little bit more, I guess what I would call a free-form mentality, and it involves doing a lot more growing because you're growing a portion of your own fertilizer as part of it. And honestly, when I get out of here and I have more space, I'm going to do more of a biointensive approach than a square foot approach. But for a vegetable garden, an herb garden, first time around with some flowers mixed in it, you can't go wrong with square foot. So that's where I would go. Definitely raised beds. 
Um, you can build a structure for a raised bed, like like you've seen in my videos where I have the timbers to make the raised bed, uh, what we've done up in Arkansas with some of the preemptive stuff to get ready for when we go up there with rocks. But you can do raised beds just by piling stuff up. The big thing is, once you have your soil in place, you go out and create a soil mixture or whatever, or use what's there, don't till. Do not till your soil. It's a terrible thing to do. No harsh uh, chemical fertilizers and no tilling, and you'll solve half your problems. And you have to continuously add organic matter, compost, mulch, things like that. But if you do that, the, here's the issue. Soil stratifies in layers. It stratifies in layers of pH. It stratifies in levels of biological activity. And a lot of the biological activity actually creates the pH. So we, we look at soil and we say, well, it's too acidic or it's too basic and it needs to be adjusted because this plant likes acidic soil and this plant likes sli slightly basic soil. Well, the, the, the problem that we have there is we're trying to change the entire, entire structure of the soil to be acidic or basic. If we leave it alone, it will be acidic at some levels. It will be basic at some levels. And you can take an acid-loving plant and a, base, a, a basic-loving plant, and you put them side by side, and they'll both grow healthily. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, all that happens is the root systems in those plants find the stratified layer of where the pH is closest to what they're looking for. And they put out the majority of their root structure at that stratified layer. Well, if you keep churning it, then we can't find equilibrium. We also continuously disrupt and damage the microorganisms that live in the soil that will do all the work for you if you'll stop walking on your soil and let them. So raise beds and square foots and don't till. Now, if you're going to make like a mixture of soil, yeah, you mix it all up when you put it in there the first time. Once it's in there, leave it alone. All you should be doing is adding stuff to the top of it. If you don't like the square foot concept, get a, get a good book on biointensive. I can't remember the name of the book, but I'll put a link to it in today's show notes. And uh, you can even do smaller beds with that method. You're just going to have to bring in your own mulch and your own compost until you expand large enough to be growing a lot of it for yourself. But definitely raised beds as your first uh, garden and uh, I don't know what you mean by conventional gardening, but I probably would tell you not to do it. All right, so let's go on to another question here. I know this guy won't mind when I tell you who he is. He's Mark the Limey from the forum. And he says, my wife has high blood pressure, and I just listened to your podcast on medicinal plants, and how garlic has a much reduced or no effect at all if it's cooked uh, for reduction of high blood pressure, and many of its other medicinal properties are damaged by the cooking process. And his wife has tried raw garlic and doesn't really enjoy it. And what could I suggest? He was thinking of a spread or something like that. Probably not a bad idea, the spread, Mark. That's a, that's a good way to go. But here's, again, the easy thing to do with this. Let's say you're going to make some kind of linguine noodle dish, right? And you're going to have like a white cream sauce and a garlic base to it. And, and that's going to be what you, you would normally cook. Take a portion of the garlic. Let's say you're going to use four cloves of garlic to cook with. Take two of those cloves and don't cook with them. Chop them up fine about the same uh, way that you chop up the ones you're going to do the cooking with. Use the ones you cook with to give, because there's a different characteristic to garlic when it's cooked, and it caramelizes, and it's really a great cooking tool, so don't stop doing that. But then at the end, when you're done cooking but the food's still hot, Take the last of the garlic and mix it into your food. It'll get gently warm, but it won't be harshly cooked, and it won't have all those wonderful properties damaged and destroyed. So that way you're not trying to sit there and eat cloves of, of pure garlic, which 
God knows, for some people, that would be really tough. I, I really don't like garlic that way. I, I like the taste of a little bit of it, but I'm not going to sit there and eat five cloves of garlic chewed up. Uh, so that's one way. Another way is to do things like incorporate it into salad dressing. So chopped garlic into your, you know, your vinaigrette or what, or your Italian or whatever salad dressing you're making. When you take something like garlic that has that harsh, deep flavor, as long as you mix it with other things, it accentuates flavor. But if you try to eat it straight, it's too dominating. And that's why it has this, you know, the garlic is, oh, it's so tough, and you've got to cook it, and it's hot and spicy, and this, and it's too strong and all. Well, I want you to think about something that most people eat um, on the majority or as part of the majority of their meals, and that is salt, Okay. Salt is in everything. We have salt in our soups, salt in our noodles, salt, salt, salt. And then most people sit down to eat dinner, and they get the salt shaker, and what do they do? They shake salt, additional salt on their food. And does it taste good? Absolutely. I do it too. I'm not a salt enemy. I'm always people, get rid of all the salt. The salt's killing us all. Without salt, you die. You need salt. So I'm okay with it. People with very high blood pressure, obviously, have to if they have a predisposition that's aggravated, by high sodium intake, they have to mitigate their salt intake. Um, but for most people, salt really doesn't have any uh, effect at all on high blood pressure. Now, you can have too much of anything. But here's my point. Have you ever sat down to a table and went, boy, I can't wait to eat a great big plate of salt? Got your salt shaker, took the, the, the lid off it, and poured a great big pile of salt in the center of the plate, got yourself a teaspoon, and started eating salt that way. Would you like to do that? I don't think anybody would. I think anybody that put a spoonful of salt in their mouth would be like, oh my God, what have I done? This is terrible. But when added to foods, it accentuates their flavor. It has a pleasing taste, but no one eats a plate of salt. That's how you use raw garlic or lightly warm, slightly cooked garlic. You use it as an additive. You can use it as an additive in just about anything that's going to go well with the flavor of garlic and it'll work well for you. So the garlic, you know, like a garlic sandwich spread or for like crackers or something, absolutely. But don't limit yourself and just take all the things that you've been putting garlic into and add your garlic right at the end. I think you'll find that it actually will taste a little bit better for you. You'll get more of that wonderful garlic taste and it won't be anything at all like sitting there and chewing on cloves of garlic. Let's see if I can find some more questions to take. I'll dig through the box here a bit. Alright, so the next question I got comes from a guy named Dick. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks, I'm not calling him a Dick. That's how he described himself, not Richard Dick. So Dick wants to know what my opinion of is. Uh, uh, Dick wants to know what my opinion of the 30 carbine is. It's a self defense round, a home defense round, more or less. Um, he said he listened to the show I did back in a while ago with James Jaeger, and we were talking about how shotguns and rifles and carbines are fight stoppers, and handguns, you know, are what we use when we can't have one, and that we're better off with a tactical situation of having any one of those three. And uh, said he has a Ruger 10-22, he loves it, he shoots it all the time, and it has a very familiar feel to him. So he thought the carbine, the 30 carbine, would be a very uh, good home defense uh, carbine and, and give him greater firepower, you know. Uh, kind of a step up, uh, still be quiet, low recoil, uh, proven effective, and have a very similar fit, form, and function to the Ruger 1022. And what was my thought of the round overall as a home defense round? I think it's fabulous. I think it's absolutely 100% a wonderful home defense weapon. It's a hell of a lot better than your 1022. I mean, he said he'd actually considered relying on his 1022, but thought better of it. Well, I, I would say that's a good idea. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to get shot with it. I really don't. And um, you know, you take five or six rounds in the chest from a, a 22 at relatively short range. It's bad news. You're probably going to die. 
the the thing is in a home defense situation you're actually concerned that the person uh that's that, that's that you have to shoot because you're forced into that situation might be doing you harm and there's not enough shock for the person to effectively bleed out uh before they return fire the uh the 30 carbine has been uh, much maligned and, and uh, underestimated and kind of bad-mouthed as being underpowered. And we have to, if we're going to be fair to that weapon, we're going to have to look back and see, well, how was it judged? Uh, what what uh, criteria was used to judge it and decide that it was underpowered? And it was used in, in the uh, latter parts of World War II. It was used in Korea. Uh, it was even used a little bit up in the Vietnam era. And what what were the other soldiers using when when one soldier was using a thirty carbine? Well, they were using either like an M1 Garand or an, uh, uh, you know the, uh, the M14 uh, or what have you with you know either shooting a thirty oh six or a three oh eight. Now you take those two rounds side by side in a battlefield situation, and yeah, the thirty carbine is going to come up looking like it's lackluster. Uh, but you take that thirty carbine, you use it at home defense ranges with good solid hundred and ten grain hollow point ammunition, and it's going to put it's going to put a hurt on somebody fast, and it's going to have a, a plenty of energy to do the job. Let me put it to you this way: the thirty carbine at a hundred yards has energy equivalent to the muzzle energy of most three fifty seven magnums. So I think for reaching out to a hundred yards, it's more than sufficient. Uh, I think at home defense ranges where you're generally talking seven yards or less, it's 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 more than sufficient. Um, is it my first choice? No, but I wouldn't fault anybody for choosing it. So I think it's a good weapon. I also think they're cool as hell weapon. Uh, they're a pretty decent survival weapon overall because they're lightweight, compact. And the big thing about the 30 carbine is it is a a a you know a soldier's weapon. It is designed to to endure the rigors of the battlefield. And I've never really known anybody that has one that's unhappy with the decision. So I say first choice, no, but adequate, yes. And if it's what you want, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I would still say to your gun battery, add at least one good solid shotgun, a 20 or a 12-gauge uh, pump, very inexpensive. It'll cost you a third of what that car mine's going to cost. A uh, very good investment. It's going to give you a lot more utility and flexibility uh, than your 22. You're going to have a gun for a second shooter if you get in a situation that's tactically required uh, to have more than one shooter. Uh, you have a backup gun. So I'd add the shotgun to the battery. Uh, guy said he has a handgun in a 22, and he's looking to expand from there. Uh, I would go again into if you want your 30 carbine as uh it's a mid-range uh, center fire. That's fine. Shotgun next. You might want to look long-term at buying uh, something a little bit more powerful in the center fire world. Something along the lines of a 306, a 308, a 7 millimeter 08, a 260. Uh, anything that's more of a uh, medium to large game uh, round. But if you don't have any plans for hunting, it's probably not necessary, and you'd probably be all right with that battery. All right. So let's see if I can dig up another question for us. Here's a good one from Debbie. Debbie says, Jack. Um, we're trying to make a decision on what to do with our property from the standpoint of making it produce food for us. And we're very interested in permaculture concepts and technologies. Um, but what we're more interested in is, should we even bother with a vegetable garden? Or would it be okay to just do 100% perennial fruits, nuts, berries, vines, all types of things like that, and you know, have to get them established. Which once they're established, obviously it's a lot less maintenance than a typical garden. I know you're big in the garden, but how would you feel about that approach? Well, I, I really can't fault the approach. I, I can't really see anything wrong with it. I don't know that I would go completely that way. I'll tell you that when we move and I have more room and more space and more time, and I'm going to be doing quite a bit of traveling, I assume as well in my future. 
I'm actually going to scale back um, the gardening in a ratio format. I'll probably do just as much gardening as I do now. I have, what do I have, five or six beds, and it'll probably be similar to that. I don't even know that I'll have that many beds for typical vegetable crops. I think I'm going to take an approach that I would kind of guide you to consider taking, and that is, okay, so I, I create a trellis and I have grapes growing on my trellis, and then I have all these wonderful uh, parts of my trellis where the wires connect into. Maybe I throw in some beans all along my grape trellis and I do interplantings there. Um, I have tall trees that I grow beans up the side of. Um, you know, I have herb gardens that have multiple different herbs growing in them that I use more as an ornamental, but they're also a source of herbs, and I grow them in a perennial fashion so that they reseed themselves. I grow huge plots of uh, mixed lettuces and greens that I allow a lot of them to go to seed and reseed themselves, so as some of them are better plantings for the fall, the winter, the spring, things like that, they sprout on their own at the time that's best for them. Um, that's the approach that I would really consider taking um, is more of a blended approach than just saying I'm going to do 100% uh, crops that that take care of themselves 100%. I'm not going to do any vegetable gardening whatsoever. I think there's always room for a few pepper plants, a few tomato plants, uh, but you can you, know, you can do those with containers, and maybe that's a better way to do it. So I think that long term I would look at that blended approach, but going on a heavier weight towards trees, vines, uh, bushes, I'm going to do that myself. I think there's a lot of uh, value in that. And once you get those systems established, uh, they'll take care of themselves with uh, very little in the way from you. Now, if you live in dry climates, you have to provide additional irrigation, but it's pretty easy to set up automated systems to provide the irrigation for those, uh, do a lot less work, and get a much higher yield, honestly, from a few trees than from a lot more work that you do in a few beds. But then the other thing about doing some interplantings with, like, potatoes, everybody should have a potato bin. Um, for long-term potatoes, I mean, you can grow them in a, basically a wooden bin and straw. That makes sense. Uh, growing sweet potatoes in the ground uh, is an interplanting and is an ornamental, and then digging up the tubers at the end of each season. Uh, very high caloric content. And then encouraging wild edibles to grow on your property, even buying seeds from known sources. Lamb's quarters, for instance. If you, if you can't get lamb's quarters to grow uh, where you're at, it's either a climate they just don't grow in or you've done something really wrong. Um, once they're established, they, they become a weed. And I think there's a lot of other wild edibles that are out there, miner's lettuce, for instance, uh, that can be grown uh, on your property. And by doing this, by having this fruits, bushes, kind of this you know, montage of all of these types of crops with little interplantings of, uh, of you know, usable vegetables throughout, you increase the opportunity to, uh, to mitigate the need for pesticides because everything's so mixed up and hard to find, your, your pest problem uh, stays mitigated to a large degree. And then you alleviate another concern as well. I've talked to people that say, I'm, I'm concerned about having this great, big, huge, beautiful garden uh, because it's going to attract attention if we have a shit hit the fan. I think that's an overreach, but if you live out in the country and you have several acres or more, the approach that I'm talking about and the approach that I was asked about here actually mitigates that a great deal because you don't have this little island, right? It just looks like this, this, this pile of weeds and trees and everything that's pretty, but it's not something that the average person uh, that's unprepared themselves is going to look at and go, oh, there's lots of food there. So I think there's a tremendous advantage to taking that approach. I'd encourage you to look at it, but I would encourage you, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't completely give up on things like a nice, fresh chef salad from your backyard. There's too much pleasure in that. And you'll find that just about anywhere you grow, except when the ground is covered with snow and nothing can grow down there, 
you'll find types of greens and lettuces that can grow from the coldest part of the year through the warmest part of the year and back. So find those things, get them to work, get them into as much of a perennial approach as you possibly can. Use automation as much as you can for your irrigation systems, even low-tech automation, which might be that you set up some tanks and you fill them with a pressured uh, garden hose out of a well, use gravity feed, and maybe you only have to fill it once a week, and then it's a matter of setting up some automatic or turning some valves. Uh, manually. Either way, it becomes much easier and much less work. I think if you do that, you'll get a really productive system uh, with a lot of redundancy uh, built into it. You're always going to have good years. You may not always have good years for your apples, but you'll always have good years from total production uh, when you when you get as many different varieties as you can that will grow well in your area. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap today's show up. I think this is a good show. Great questions. Remember, if you want me to answer your question on the air, send me an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com um, with the uh, subject, questions for Jack. All right? So jack at the survivalpodcast.com uh, with the subject, question for Jack. Remember, enter our listener appreciation contest today. So use that same email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Send me the code word. And uh, we'll see if you win the book from James Stevens. And remember to catch me tonight on James Stevenson show on Blog Talk Radio. Again, if you're on the email list, I'll send out a notification of it. Uh, otherwise, come by the show notes. I'll put a link to James's show and James's site. I think it's going to be a fun show. You guys are going to get a chance to call in, talk to me live on the air. I think we can have a lot of fun with that. Um, one more thing. Again, make sure you're going by the site. Make sure you're using the resources that we have there for you, the form, you name it. Remember, we have our gear store now, uh, TSPers. If you have other TSPers in your family, get them a T-shirt, get them a patch, get them something for Christmas. I think that would be a great use of your funds, uh, and it will help support the show as well. Uh, our gear shop is there. It's ready to go, ready to take orders. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. all gets spent.